Hello, my name is Joe Hogan. Many of you know me as Epic Grays in various video games and social media. Welcome to Episode 7 of Geektitude, a geek culture podcast that celebrates the inner geek in all of us. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by David Gallagher. How are you doing this morning, David? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being on. Um, we're going to go right into the interview so everybody can uh, get to know who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So uh, I was, uh, I'm was i a comic book writer for a living. I, um, I was born in Hawaii. I live in Brooklyn. I've written uh, in the past Iron Man for Marvel Comics, Green, uh, the Dark Star and the Winter Guard miniseries for Marvel, uh, Green Lantern Corps for DC Comics, uh, High Moon, which is our werewolf western series that uh, we won a Harvey Award for, and currently I'm working on The Only Living Boy, which is a post-apocalyptic young adult uh, graphic novel series. Yeah, and I've been able to read a couple ep- uh, issues of that, and it's really fun. I really enjoy it. Thank you so much. It's really we really wanted to get something that was in the spirit of classic adventure fiction. So it's uh so yeah, there's a lot of danger and suspense and intrigue and and action in the way that you might enjoy from like your old classic 80s cartoons or something like, you know, a Pixar cartoon where there's a uh a good amount of humor and brevity and action and excitement and nothing's too bogged down, but it's still about serious emotional things. Yeah, it it definitely felt very much like that. Now that you mention it, it was kind of very reminiscent of of a classic Saturday morning cartoon. It was it was very nice. Um, what areas of geekitude do you excel in? What are your areas that you cling to as a geek? Uh, man, I I think for me, I mean, the number one thing is old time radio. So I grew up on old time radio before I even had a television so i'm really still you know decades later still really into that stuff especially things like gunsmoke the shadow flash gordon uh yours truly johnny dollar was the first comic i ever sold i sold a script based on an old-time radio program so i've got a certain fondness for um that style of storytelling where you as the listener are building the visuals in your head and in a way comics writing comics is exactly the reverse so you're given the pictures and then as a reader you have to fill in the soundtrack in your head and what batman sounds like to me in my head it's different than what batman sounds to you in your head so it's really interesting to be a fan of of audio storytelling and then to make a career in visual storytelling so there's a lot of fun with that um, and I think I grow as a creator in that space between the two of them. So I think that that's where I really excel. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of um, music of Tom Waits and Leonard Cohen and Nico and Elvis Costello and Lou Reed. Like any any musician who is also sort of doubles as a not a singer songwriter so much, but as a as a storyteller, I really mm-hmm. get a lot of power. Uh, out of that and power of the words and, and how the music and the words work hand in hand to deliver a, just a, a really emotive kind of narrative. So uh, that that sort of stuff for me is, you know, r- really palpable. I'm a big fan of comics, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not I mean, and certainly I make my career in it, but I wouldn't really consider myself a comic geek any more than I would consider myself a theater geek like. I love theater, love it, but it's 
I'm not obsessed with it. It's like one of just several interests I have. I love, uh, I love the medium. I love, uh, the superhero genre. I love the slice of life genre. I love the power of words and pictures working in tandem to communicate ideas and, uh, messages. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's sort of, um, where I sort of keep my focuses in sort of like old time radio, uh, music, uh, comics, theater, and, you know, and then, you know, tabletop gaming, which I, I really enjoy. I love the collaborative nature of that. Yeah, that's awesome. They all kind of have a little bit of that collaborative quality to it. So I think that's, that's kind of a, an interesting theme. Yeah, yeah. So in that for me is, you know, I, I work with, uh, I mostly work with, uh, artist Steve Ellis, who's my business partner. Mm-hmm. And, as collaborators, you know, we get a, a lot of strength from each other. And so, yeah, so I think I gravitate towards anything that is a collaborative work. You know, even in theater, it's collaborative. You know, there's a director and there's actors and lots of people working together to um, lend their experiences to tell a, a far greater story than themselves. Oh, absolutely. I'm a, a, both a, a theater major and a drama teacher. So, um so I am a big proponent of using theater um, as a teaching tool, mostly because it, it is very collaborative in it, and you can learn so many different things from so many different angles by it. So uh, yeah, I'm right on board on that one. Cool. Cool. Um, are there areas where you feel like uh, your geekitude is low, you don't have as strong of an affinity for um, something that most mainstream geeks consider, like, basic? Yeah, uh, so I think everybody, aside from me, speaks the language of Star Wars. And I didn't see those movies until much, much later in life. So I don't really have any sort of connection to it, nor do I really understand, uh, A, the obsession with the what they call the first three movies, mm-hmm. or the uh, animosity towards people who look at the prequels as something, some horrible, horrible thing. So, uh, I don't really understand that conversation. I, I, I'm not excited to see the new movie. Um, and, and that's not to take away from people who are super excited about it. I just don't get it. It's just not my thing. Um, and that's, and that's fine to each their own. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we say on this show quite often that you cannot be a geek in everything and, and everybody has their areas. And that's what makes, I think, being a geek and being able to be part of the geek community fun is because you do kind of learn different things and different likes from other people and some you're going to gravitate towards and some you're not. And I I think it's, it's perfectly valid that you are not a star Wars geek. Um, do you have any projects going on right now? You had mentioned, um, a a couple of, of comics that you're currently writing. Yeah. So right now, um, we're working on a young adult, uh, web series called The Only Living Boy. We serialize it uh, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays online, and the trade paperback will come out, debut next March, uh, through paper cuts, uh, available in, you know, on Amazon, online retailers, through comic shops, through bookstores, through school libraries. Um, so, yeah, so we're super excited about that. It's the story of a 12-year-old boy who runs away from home and uh, finds himself lost alone in, like, a patchwork alien world. Mm-hmm. Um, where there's mermaid warriors, insect princesses, uh, mad scientists, 
crazy chimerical dragons. We sort of describe it as the Jungle Book meets the island of Dr. Thoreau. Um, Dr. Moreau, rather, not Dr. Thoreau. That would be a little bit more philosophical. The island yes. of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> uh, so there's, uh, you know, so there's crazy patchwork creatures, and it, it's cool to see sort of um, how the fandom has really responded to it, because it's, uh, I think it's, it's dramatic in a way, we don't really call it an all-ages series, but it's dramatic in a way like a book like Bridge to Terabithia or The Fault in Our Stars would be, mm-hmm. uh, in that it, it adds that weight. We're not afraid to sh- shy away from themes about loneliness and isolation and feeling lost and unloved and and scared so there's a lot of cool stuff obviously we we've got some cool stuff we've got you know people fighting monsters and crazy like roller coaster things and hidden maps and and stuff and it's certainly a very immersive i mean as a creator it's immersive um but you know it's it's cool because we're able to play with the those feelings that i think every 12 year old wrestles with that kind of like who am i in this world who what kind of person will I grow up into? So, um, yeah, so that's, that's really a lot of fun. So, um, so we're working on that. And, uh, we also, uh, work on a werewolf Western series called high moon, um, which is serialized online, um, through highmooncomic.com. And it's the story of an uh, unchanging man in a changing time. He's basically like this bounty hunter and, 1890 as we move from the gilded age to the industrial age and he's forced with the decision to live like a beast or die like a man so there's a lot of um, drama in him trying to um, decide whether or not he wants to change with the time or uh, or not so that's a lot of fun to work on we've got cowboys wrestling werewolves steam engine golems kind of demonic horses uh, Jack the Ripper stuff. It's 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 kind of fun. I have to say, I I didn't know much about High Moon until um until I set up today's show with you, and I'm I'm disappointed that I didn't know about it because I'm I'm a big werewolf fan. I think they're they're a fun creature to deal with, and um and so I am very excited to get into this because it it sounds like something very different than most of the stuff out there. And um, well, that's kind of fun for me. Oh, cool! Yeah, and the, digging into that one. Yeah, and the trade paperback for that is already available, so you can pick that up at your local comic shops or online. So yeah, so that's that's sort of the major stuff we're working on um, that I can talk about. Previously, we worked on uh, this year earlier. We worked on the Green Lantern Corps for DC Comics. Um, so yeah, so you know, we love that kind of um, taking heroes and putting them in sort of um, sort of holy moly moments uh-huh. uh, where, you know, you can definitely go like, oh, my God, I can't believe that Guy Gardner just hit a dragon in the face with a baseball bat. Or, oh, my God, I can't believe that that dragon is or that bear is running on the back of a dragon or those kind of things where it's just ludicrous, but it makes sense within the context of the story. Stuff that only comics can really uh, give to you. So that's really what I think we... Uh, work on the most is that that unbelievable holy wow moment a lot of fantastical uh imagery and and ideas that's cool right exactly yeah very cool now out of all the all the stuff that you deal with as a geek do you have a favorite fandom 
You know, it's funny. I I think my favorite fandom is probably like if it's tough because I follow sort of casually follow a lot of fandoms, but um, I really like the fandom. So I like the comics fandom the most, but really that's sort of my favorite is the web comics fandom, which is sort of a subgenre of the comics fandom. Um, where I found that like a really, uh, a lot of really great embraceive, uh, community, like all our comics serialize on this, um, comic site called Topastic, where I find there's like 19,000 registered users and oh, wow. it's super active community of like really engaged fans who like every time we post content, they're super engaged with it. They'll leave comments, they'll like it, they'll share it. They'll, you know, talk amongst it. They'll ask questions. Um, so I really like, you know, from a, as a creator, my favorite fan, my favorite fandom is the one that I get to interact with the most and on a consistent basis. And so for us, you know, like being able to, uh, interact in a way is, is with whatever fandom it is, is my favorite because it's where the collaboration comes from. Sometimes a fan will say something really cool and, even though we won't necessarily use it in whole, it does sort of sometimes get us thinking in a different direction or uh, a radical idea that we hadn't thought about, you know, in terms of, you know, our characters. So listening to their perspective is really nice. And like I said before, collaboration is where we really get a lot of our energy and our passion from, mm -hmm. like draw strength in that. So I love that, that aspect. So I would say probably, the web comics fandom is my favorite fandom. That's awesome. That's awesome. And it's it's always nice to hear um from creators that that do interact with their fans and do um you know not not find themselves beholden to their feedback, but do look at their feedback and kind of see, you know, gauge, you know, what are they wanting? What are they liking? What are they not liking? I think that's that's a, a very got to be a very cool experience to have to be able to kind of really have that interaction with the people that are, are consuming your work. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. So it's, it's, it's really a pleasure. Very cool. Um, do you have any guilty pleasures? Any, any things that you, you know, kind of just on the slide will admit to? Uh, you know, I was Smallville, the TV show Smallville used to be a huge guilty pleasure of mine. Uh, it's it, because it, it wasn't always necessarily the best, but yet every week, I found myself glued to the TV to watch it, like, <laughs> for 10 years. Uh, so that was certainly a guilty pleasure. Uh, you know, but generally, I don't feel guilty about the stuff I like. Um, there are some things that have become deeply immersed in because I just get super excited about it. Mm -hmm. um, like, I've days lost in research for High Moon or Own Living Boy or even building assets for the games I've put together. Um, but I don't feel guilty about it. Uh, I, I do feel guilty when I do that in ex instead of doing the work I need to do, <laughs> but I don't feel guilty for liking it. Um, so, you know, like I love the flash, I love Supergirl, but I, I'm not going to feel bad about liking those things because they're awesome. Well, that's cool. That's a, that's a good way of looking at it. You mentioned, um, getting lost in research. What kind of research do you do for, for your work? Oh, wow. So for High Moon, it's we try to build every story 
around a historical time period. So most of what we're doing is, you know, takes place around 1890, 1891-ish. So it's usually making sure that uh, things are, you know, historically represented correctly, who was the president, who were the senators of the states that the things were taking place in, um, what were the major laws and initiatives being passed, were was America moving from the gold standard to the silver standard or to a different standard altogether? You know, what was mining like? What were the, what was clothing like? Uh, and, and a lot of that we think about from a character first perspective. Um, you know, we're, we are working just now on a story that takes place in Baton, Baton, Baton Rouge, Louisiana in, uh, 1887. So what did Baton Rouge look like then? You know, um, that kind of stuff. So what was the culture like? What were the people like? Um, with, uh, Only Living Boy, before we even put any of Only Living Boy to paper, I must have gone through, uh, I think, I think the last toll was 1200 hours of young adult, uh, content and cartoons. So process everything from, I reread like, a Wrinkle in Time and the um, Lloyd Alexander books and Black Cauldron and, um, you know, the old Ruby Spears cartoons, um, the old Hanna-Barbera cartoons, uh, just to look at, you know, how they, because um, as a kid, like, there was always a threat, uh, a series of threat and menace, even though there was no actual danger or bloodshed. So how did they help? create those elements you know um what were the key features that helped um make those stories so memorable in in our minds you know so um, those were the things i i looked at specifically were how they evoked danger and how they created memorable moments even though the animation was totally limited so um and then what were the in books like, you know, uh, Bridge to Terabithia, why did those books have such a powerful and palpable effect on uh, children of my reading age? So those sorts of things is sometimes it's direct research. Uh, sometimes it's uh, for the work I do. You know, sometimes it's directly research like I need this thing. Where can I find it? And some of it's tangential. Some of it's more thematic. Some of it's more like. How do you convey these big moments? Um, so, so that's what I do for like the, the comics I write. For the games I do, I try to, you know, we can talk about this a little bit more, uh, in a bit, but for the games I do, like, uh, some of it is, uh, building assets or creating traps. Like in mm-hmm. one of the games I just did, I did, uh, the characters broke into X-Men Mansion where there were tons of, Traps everywhere. Uh, so researching, like, kind of how to build the perfect trap for characters, you know, that kind of stuff was, that's a lot of fun. That, it sounds like a lot of fun. I, I, I hope that some of my students go back and, and listen to this because anytime we ask them to do research, <laughs> the groans begin. And I think, you know, if you're researching something you love or you're excited about, uh, I think it, uh, it, it does, it do, you do become immersed in it. You do, find yourself, oh my God, going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> well, the more you research, the better off it gets. Like, I love research. I mean, sometimes to the 
distraction of doing other stuff. But mm-hmm. now that I know how to research and now that I know what the techniques to find the stuff that I need, it's, it's almost more interesting and more powerful than it ever was when I was younger. When I was younger, I would just read stuff and think that that was the right stuff. But now that I, uh, I have since learned how to find exactly what I need and exactly how to look for it and exactly what to bring out as the key points. Um, I'm not wasting my time as much just reading big blocks of text. Now I know how to hone and research and filter and take out the key points and then, you know, move on. Yeah, it does make a big difference. Very big difference. It does. Huge difference. Well, very cool. Well, thank you for, uh, for subjecting yourself to our interviewing process. Um, it's, it's good to, to get to know you. Um, we're going to move on to things that we did that were geeky this week, and uh, this is being recorded the weekend after Thanksgiving, so um, so I'm, I'm sure that that influenced us a little bit. I know it did for for me. Uh, my husband and I went up to Portland for uh, about five days. I'd never been, and um, if I could go back there tomorrow, I would. <laughs> I really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, there there is a big geek culture in Portland and they're not <laughs> apologetic for it at all. And so it was, it was kind of nice to be able to dive into that. Um, one of the places I went to is they have this place called ground controlled, uh, classic arcade. And it is exactly that it's an old school arcade, but it's very kind of made to be more adult. So it's got the bar, it's got, uh, you know, some, some nice music playing, you know, very, uh, kind of techno fun, and it was just neat to to walk around and play all those really really classic arcade games. Um, my husband, who does not claim to be a geek in any way, shape, or form, uh, discovered pinball again and forgot how much he loved it from when he was growing up. And so that was kind of cool. We played a lot of pinball. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it was a lot of fun. It was kind of fun to share that with him because you know sometimes he. He's hesitant to join me on on my geeky adventures, and uh, this time it, it, I think he really enjoyed it too. So that was neat. Um, have you ever been to Portland? I've only been to Portland once, and that was in the mid '90s. So I haven't been. Uh, I mean, what did they say that the spirit of the '90s is alive in Portland? I'm sure it hasn't <laughs> changed at all uh, since I've been there. But I live in, you know, I live in Brooklyn, so. I was told that Portland is where people from Brooklyn go to retire. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to seeing how uh, how different it's been since I've been there since, I guess, literally 20 years ago. Yeah, one of the things I absolutely want to steal from there and put down here in Southern California is um, their, their movie pubs. Um, just these beautiful, beautiful old classic theaters that have been uh, tricked out with all the um, – most modern film equipment so you can watch you know really nice movies with really good quality sound in this beautiful old theater and they have like tables set up in front of the seats so that you can order these nice like artesian cocktails and they'll bring food to your to your seat and it's like oh my god this is amazing why aren't these everywhere yeah i uh i don't have those here oh i don't have those in brooklyn but we do have uh, like Alamo draft houses here in, in Manhattan, so that's really nice. Yeah, yeah, and they, they've started to try and do that kind of out in the LA area because I'm in I'm in Palm Springs, but uh, they're more kind of here's you know 
35 recliners in a in a small theater and we're we're going to kind of treat it like it's a restaurant that you can watch movies in and it's, it does not have the same feel at all and uh so that's that's something that I I will uh will definitely be looking forward to when we go back up to Portland again um and the last thing that we did up there that was kind of in the geeky vein and and kind of sad for me is that we went to Powell's World of Books and I've been there yeah yeah it's phenomenal it's huge and and we enjoyed looking around, but I kept remind I kept thinking to myself, I'll have to I'll have to get that on my Kindle. Well, I'll have to get that on my Kindle. And I just kind of realized I I don't buy books anymore. And and oh, it kind wow. of it kind of took away the um the love I had of of bookstores back in the day because as as our space has become more and more optimized for for our living, you know, having a lot of books around is just not as practical and so i i kind of was a little bit sad about that i'm kind of i i i appreciate the feel of a book in the hand but at the same time i don't want to store it afterwards and and yet i don't know that i want to just give them away either so i'm kind of i'm I'm kind of in this point right now where i'm trying to figure out what my relationship with books is uh because it was kind of that wake-up call of you have gone digital you know right well, yeah, I mean, I totally get that. I've totally been there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I have it in storage, a whole bunch of long boxes of comic books, and, and just recently joined um, Marvel Unlimited, so I can look at a lot of the back issues that I have in storage on my device because it's it's easily accessible. And, you know, I don't have to worry about messing up my, my mint condition whatever issue. <laughs> So yeah. So how about you? What were some of your geeky things this week? I mean, so most most of what I've been doing is prepping um, some books to go to the printer. So I haven't been super geeked out. But one of the things that I did do was during um, the Black Friday sale, um, which was Friday, I guess, um, is uh, Choose Your Own Adventure. Um, you, I think everybody remembers those books from back in the day. Absolutely. Um, one of the awesome second-person narratives that allow you to choose, uh, you know, what your character will do. Like, so if you decide to jump, turn to page 21, and if you decide to stay where you are, turn to page 15. So they have a they have a website, and it's like cyoa.com, and they had an awesome Black Friday sale. So I picked up one of my favorite choose your own adventure books called The Trumpet of Terror. Uh, which takes place in Asgard. Um, so I was like, oh yeah, so I'm going to get that. And, uh, that was like 10 bucks. And then I got this awesome choose your own adventure, um, war with the evil power master t-shirt. And then I think everything on the store was like 25% off. So that to me was, uh, that to me was really cool. So I was, uh, I can't wait till it arrives cause I'm going to wear it. We're going to be like, oh yeah, choose your own adventure. That's awesome. Um, but also it, 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 for me, it was, uh, I was kind of a reluctant reader, uh, for a while. And mm-hmm. those choose your own adventure books really, those in comics really sort of helped, uh, rekindle my passion and love for reading. So, um, you know, I look at that as, especially since we're working in a YA-ish type of area, I look to those books a lot as, as books that, uh, aren't afraid to take chances. I mean, you died in the Choose Your Own Adventure book. 
Oh yeah, like, absolutely. You, you died. Like you just like make the wrong decision, you die. So, um, you know, that sort of, uh, stuff, uh, to me is really interesting. So, uh, and they weren't a, afraid to shy away from it. And that to me was super exciting. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to get the shirt. I'm thrilled to get the book again. And, uh, I'm pretty excited about it. So, I mean, that's sort of the geekiest thing I did. I may go see the peanuts this weekend, which will be super duper geeky, but I'm excited to see that movie. But yeah, for the most part, I think that that's where, um, my love of geeky stuff is this week. Very cool. and, yeah. Very, well, I'm, I'm looking at the t-shirt right now and I remember this book cover in my school's library and how you could like, if you got your name on the list to get this book, it was amazing because it was always checked out. So that's very, very cool. <laughs> Yeah, I'm super excited. I think it's it's so it's so iconic. Um, so I'm super thrilled. And it, I mean, come on, war with the evil power master. I mean, that sounds so <laughs> powerful and scary and evil. So it, it almost feels like you're battling like Ming the Merciless or like Doctor Doom, like evil power master. Yeah, you know? no, it's that that's awesome. I that window will stay open and I will be ordering that shirt before <laughs> before the day is over. And as far as the Phoenix cartoon goes, I, I've wanted to see it and we just have not gotten out. We've been so busy and then we traveled and, and it wasn't playing it. That that's honestly probably the movie I would have chosen to go to while we were in Portland. But um I'm a, a huge Peanuts fan and uh, just have not been able to get to the, the theaters. And I need to do it soon because I don't know how much longer it's going to be out there. My master's degree, uh, my thesis in my master's degree was about the peanuts. Oh, so, fun. yeah, so I uh, yeah, so I definitely have a certain uh, place in my heart for it. Yeah, my, my senior project when I was at uh, USC for theater was Snoopy the Musical. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, wait, Snoopy the Musical or... Uh, you're a good man, Charlie Brown, the musical. It's it's actually Snoopy. It was the one that came after You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Um, you're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, I think, is better known, but I've always liked the music and, and the scenes from uh, Snoopy better. Wow, see, shows you what I know. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun to just kind of recreate all the characters, and um, and it was it was an it, USC at least at the time when I was going, I graduated from there at 2000. Um, they were very much on on creating your own theater, so a lot of people could do independent projects. And mine was, I think, the first independent musical that we did there. You know, in in that age of starting to do your own independent stuff, and so it was a lot of fun. It was it was new, it was different, but it was very nostalgic and very classic at the same time. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. That's so cool. Very cool. Um, as far as news this week goes, um, there was not a whole lot going on. Um, I think mostly because of Thanksgiving. A lot of it was kind of updates on what's going to happen the second half of seasons of a lot of different shows, which, since we try not to do spoilers on here, that's not a, a lot of stuff that we'd be covering. But you found something about, uh, Supergirl. Right. So, um, this is sort of a rumor. So take it for a grain of salt, but the rumor I read this week uh, that came out, I guess, uh, the 26th, so I guess Friday, um, was that uh, Supergirl may get a full season, 
Uh, and if it does, uh, Supergirl and the Flash will team up. So um, the the rumor was on BleedingCool.com, and it's reporting that Flash and Star Labs will guest appear on Supergirl in sort of an ep- epic network crossover uh, during May, um, which is super cool for me because I love both of those shows to death. Yeah, they're really good shows, and they're really, um, I think... I don't know. There, there are our immediate watches in this household. <laughs> so as soon as those are on, anything that hasn't been watched yet gets put on the back burner for those. Um, and here it's talking about how CW has already done the the um, Constantine crossover. Um, right. So I, I'm I'm very impressed by CW because they are crossing over with a lot of different ne- network stuff, and it seems to be working well. And it maybe a little bit groundbreaking. They might be able to start a new trend. Well, it's really interesting because so much of what they did or are doing now was influenced by Smallville's run of 10 years. I mean, mm-hmm, that show was mm-hmm. on 10 years. Um, and so one of the things that I find fascinating is that they're learning a lot of, um, Things to do differently. You know, Arrow was a big part of Smallville seasons six through ten. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Green Arrow, I guess, then. Um, and the, a Flash, too, for, for a while. So it's really interesting to see how they're able to take what they did there, and, and, and Supergirl, actually, for that matter, take the lessons that they learned from those shows and bring them into these shows and, and really build... Um, mythologies around each of these characters that are, you know, unique and unique into themselves. One of the things that I love so much about what they're doing is setting up each character with their own supporting cast. I think that uh, people have read the comics for so long um, and, and seen so many superheroes just sort of hanging out together that they often forget that the most important part of those shows to keep those characters grounded is the supporting cast. So seeing, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, a police captain for Arrow to bounce off against, or seeing a sister for Supergirl to bounce off against, or seeing a, you know, a support team uh, of characters for the Flash to, to bounce off against, you know, all those things keep them really, focused and grounded so that they largely become relatable because as everybody has superpowers, it becomes a a little tougher to sort of a tougher pill to swallow. But what I like is the, um, what I like is sort of the growth of both of those shows. I've really left the flash last season. I'm really interested in, uh, what I've seen of Supergirl so far. I think I've seen what five episodes now, Mm -hmm. uh, up to live wire. Uh, so, you know, I've really, Enjoyed what I've seen in Supergirl so far, and I think that both of those shows will uh, create a really nice mix of, um, you know, cool stuff. And hopefully there'll be a a race, you know, like uh, you know, like Superman and Super, Superman and Flash used to race in the comics. Yes, all the absolutely. Time. So I'd love to see a Supergirl Flash race because that would come be on, a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. I think the supporting casts that they're building up make make the difference. Um, you know, I've always liked teen, um, 
titles, you know, Avengers, Justice League, where it is a lot of characters because you can foc- you don't have to focus on just one character. I've never been um a fan of of solo titles as much just because, you know, if they're having a bad day, then that's all you get to see. You don't get to see other perspectives. And I think they've been really good about kind of bringing that dynamic to to the different series, which is, is fun to watch. And I also like the fact that they're kind of sh- shying away, a little less so in Supergirl and Flash, but I think uh, superhero shows in general are starting to shy away from the whole secret identity trope. Which is nice. Right. Like a lot more people know who they are, so it's not all about keeping their identity secret because we've seen that so much. Yeah, but you know, it, it's funny because I love the trope of the secret identity because I think that, I mean, I don't mind if a few people know, but what I think is really important about a secret identity, uh, and we can talk about this a little bit more, but uh, because it's something we use in our Marvel superheroes role playing game. Uh-huh. Uh, but the importance of secret identities in that they offer resources that you shouldn't be able to get uh, when you're in the other identity. So, for example, Spider-Man's relationship with J. Jonah Dif- Jameson is very different than his relationship, Peter Parker's relationship with J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, or Batman's relationship with Commissioner Gordon is very different than Bruce Wayne's relationship with Commissioner Gordon. And so when those characters interact, um, they should have access to resources that the other one doesn't have. You know, and, and the interaction of how the characters talk um, and what you can get from a story side is just very different. Um, so that to me is, is really interesting. If Kara goes up to, it, it's just a different thing. So if Kara goes up to one character, Cat Grant, you know, Cat Grant's going to treat her because Cat Grant knows her, doesn't know her secret identity. But Supergirl goes to Cat Grant. Cat Grant is going to treat her very differently than she treats her assistant, Kara. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think there's a lot of strength in the secret identity. And I think there's a lot of strength in keeping the secret identity. In a way, a lot of people have, metaphorically, a lot of people have secret identities. Mm-hmm. Like the relationship you have with your husband and what you tell him is very different than the relationship you might tell with your siblings or with your parents. So that to me is, is really different. Like what we tell people and how we tell them that that's no different than secret identities in, in a way anyway. That's you know? Very, so, yeah, that's a very interesting point. And, uh, and, uh, I, I definitely had not thought of it that direction and you can definitely see that. I think Supergirl is a very good example of that because the people that, are supporting her no and that's that takes away i think the way they're doing it is much better than they used to where everybody is in the dark because the people that they need to support them know about it and that they have people that they can bounce ideas from but you're absolutely right i think my absolute favorite thing about supergirl right now is the whole dynamic between her and uh cat grant um it's uh it's just kind of interesting and i i thought i was going to hate that character um, but she's just absolutely amazing. She's so much fun. And I think the last, uh, the live wire episode, um, you started to really see there was depth to the character and she just wasn't going to be, you know, the, the multimillionaire media mogul that was all about herself. Like all of a sudden you started seeing the layers and that was really fun to see. And I do think you're right. You probably wouldn't pull that out if there wasn't a secret identity involved. Right, exactly. And so that to me is, that to me is what's fascinating about secret identity. And I know we've moved away from that largely, but you know, at the same time, 
I'm a big fan of that trope. Very cool. Well, very cool. Well, I, I, you have changed my perspective on that, sir. <laughs> Thank you for, for uh, pointing that out. I think that's a very good point. Very good. Any other news that you can think of? Uh, no, I mean, I think it's been kind of a light week, but for me, like those were, those were kind of the, that to me was like kind of the, the fanboy squee moment. Yeah, that's a big one. That's a big one. All right. Well, we're going to move on to the whole reason why we are here this morning, uh, to talk about a uh, classic Marvel RPG. Now, what do you, how do you refer to it as? Because I know a lot of people call it just face rip. Um, I call it classic Marvel because that's how I, I always kind of was, referred to it as um do you have a title for it because i think everybody calls it something different i call it the marvel superheroes role-playing game or marvel heroes rpg for short if i'm like on twitter gotcha. um but yeah because that's the name of the game it's marvel superheroes marvel super like it's three words marvel superheroes mm-hmm. they're all and then it's yeah, so, yeah, so that's just what I refer to it as Marvel Superheroes RPG. Uh, or, like, like I said, Marvel Heroes or Marvel RPG for short. Very cool. Yeah, I know when I, I first started uh, playing it and I, back in, in my college days, was making content for it um, online, the um, they had just released a new one. It was one that you played with cards. And so, oh, yeah. yeah, a lot of people were getting confused between the two. And so that's why we kind of started calling it classic Marvel, because at the time there were two Marvel games that were out. There was that one that people were still kind of using, but it was starting to find its way out. And, um, and then this Overpower new was the other one, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Overpower. Yeah. So, yeah. So I will occasionally call it phase rip, like occasionally. But I find that that can be a little jargony for people who are super casual gamers. Mm-hmm. So I just try to keep it just super easy. Yeah, well, um, it's, it is funny though because I've mentioned it to a couple. Oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be talking about uh, classic Marvel, and then they will come up with oh face rip. Yeah, <laughs> right. You have a, an active game running on this right now. Yeah, so we are on our second active campaign. Um, our first one involved was centered around. Um, the thing and in the comics, the thing has a floating poker game. Mm-hmm. So uh, we and so we were playing just sort of you know just to get people used to the game. We were playing. Every player was a member of Thing's floating poker game, and so um, that was the start. So it was like Nighthawk and Shadowcat, and it was a way to get all these desperate players together. So everybody got to choose their favorite players, and and that was it. So it was Thing's floating poker game. And, um, when we started the game, you know, people were new, so we pretended everybody had a deck of cards and we would go around the table. And one of the things I really like to do as a GM is have players contribute to the story. So, um, we went around the circle and everyone had to say as they were determining what to do with their cards, whether they would increase or fold or whatever, um, they had to have a story about their last encounter with the supervillain. So, uh, and every player after them had to build on that story. So, like, you know, the thing would be like, oh, so there I was. I was fighting Hydro Man. And, and then, you know, so it became sort of an ex-goods corpse. And then, like, Nighthawk was like, oh, I was fighting Hydro Man. And then suddenly Electra was there and I pushed them together and created a giant electrical storm. And then, you know, the player playing, like, 
Shadow Cat was in. And then I called Storm over and she channeled the lightning bolt and it went to charge supercharged Rhino and blew him up. And, you know, so every character had to add a little something to that. And then the pot was getting subsequently bigger. So people were like putting in like, uh, I'll throw in one of Spider-Man's web shooters. I'll, I'll throw in a Quinjet. Uh, you can stay year free at Avengers Mansion or, um, <laughs> you know, so. So it became uh, yeah, a, it so, became a poker game with with your your background, right? <laughs> I, exactly. I see so, your storm and I raise you a quinjet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I see your yeah, exactly. So you guys can train with Iron Power Man was like you guys can train with Iron Fist for free or whatever, you know. So everybody threw in some stuff and eventually the thing was like I'll throw in a year of babysitting my my niece and nephew. For a year, and people are like, "Nope, I fold, I fold." And then suddenly, you know, like uh, Sabretooth comes in, and he's kind of crazy powerful, and uh, one thing leads to another, and the characters end up in like the Squadron Supreme universe, where everybody's an analog of, of you know, the Justice League. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of fun, and um, it was kind of a fun game. And, like we eventually brought in some new players and allowed players to switch out. So like. They eventually ran into like Baron Zemo and his little army and teamed up to battle um, Master Menace and uh, crazy Ben Grimm and fight dinosaurs and a time-displaced Arboreum and a kind of very Jurassic world kind of weird time-dimensional space-time continuum super fight. So And that was cool. That was a fun, cool campaign it was super short it was like four four adventures just to get people used to stuff they battled like the the analogs of the legion of doom and they went into like miskatomic madhouse which is sort of like an analog to like um arkham asylum and it was cool it was fun whatever uh and it, it was cool and players had a good time this new game is called and this is the one that i've sort of done a lot of work for mm-hmm. um it take it took place on the uh took place on the hill carrier and um one thing led to another but basically the hill carrier became disguised as the titanic floating titanic in space and the players had to figure out why it was the titanic and what was going on and you know what was happening and could they prevent it from blowing up or whatever and thing is is that it was actually mysterio creating a like a big distraction because he and arcade had teamed up to create murder world world where they mind controlled everyone on the planet to believe that they were in a first person shooter. And then the players, because uh, for various reasons, all the players in this game were immune to the effects of Mysterio and arcades mind control. And uh, so anyway, so the players then were now essentially just, targets in this giant massive multiplayer role-playing game where everyone on the planet was out to kill them Wow! so that's yeah so it's kind of fun so we had but all the players that are in the game are avengers all with like kind of weird idiosyncratic personality disorders mm-hmm. so it's like namer and hercules and machine man who's a robot so he's immune um and she hulk and you know all these characters who for some reason or another you know, kind of occasionally go into mindless rages, mm-hmm. you know, so, so it's cool to have that. And so the guys who are, the players who are playing are really into their characters. So the guy who's playing Namer is like, Imperious Rex, for I shall defeat you and summon upon my 
like might of Atlantis in order to, you know, so it's cool to see them really get into it. Or like the guy who's playing Hercules when they were fighting Hydra on the helicarrier, who's like, I remember when I fought the real Hydra. <laughs> this is nothing. <laughs> then he'll lift up the Quinjet and slam like crossbones in that face with it or whatever. So it, it's cool to see that. And what one of the things we've done with this game is uh, sort of the house rule is that, you know, in, in the game you can spend karma, but we've, I've actually created on the character sheets sort of a karma check checklist. Mm-hmm. So if you hit certain character moments, um, you'll get like a little tick box next to your character. You'll get like instant karma points uh, immediately. So if you're beast and you say, oh, my stars and garters, you get like five karma points. If you're Hercules and you say Zounds, you get like five power points. So you um, really you really reward your your players for the role playing aspect for for getting yes. into the character, knowing the character, and 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 actually um, using the things that they would use in the comic books. Right. Any any player who says Avengers Assemble, the first player who says Avengers Assemble, gets fifty karma points. Nobody said it yet, but yeah. But the first person to say Avengers Assemble gets that. Um, so it, it's kind of nice to have that. And, um, what we use a lot is, uh, in the game, we use secret identities. So mm-hmm. if you have a secret identity, um, your popularity and your resources are dependent on whether or not, um, how you approach that particular thing. So, um, if you're playing like machine man, if you go as machine man and you're kind of looking kind of crazy Jack Kirby like, you're going to have different resources and popularity than if you would and you went as Aaron Stack, his more human-looking version. Mm-hmm. So we, we have just different game mechanics in order to sort of create how characters interact on that level. That's very cool. Um, now, your your game, your campaign, is it kind of just removed from from – continuity altogether and it's just kind of your own um world or are you looking at it from the 80s perspective when when the game came out do you have a specific time that it's set we call it neo classic so it is so the first game we played was sort of a very mark grunewald-esque marvel two-in-one 1980s style Game. I mean, we we drew a lot from squad his run on Squadron Supreme, um, but um, the new campaign we're starting, which is tangentially related to that one, is is yeah, like I said, sort of neo classic. So if it's you don't have to be a Marvel fan mm-hmm. in order to. I mean, you can be a casual Marvel fan. You do not need to be a hardcore gamer to play the character. So if you wanted to come to my game and said, like in the last game we had um, one of the players playing the modern Thor and kid Loki and, you know, uh, Hank Pym as Avengers Academy, Hank Pym, you can play whatever version of the character that you feel is most honest to you. So the guy who's playing Hercules now is playing the more classic Hercules mm-hmm. and not the modern Hercules. So you can play whatever version of the character you, you feel is most honest to how you want to do it. And 
because Marvel continuity is sort of we call, we call it continuity light. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, major things that that happened we care about. Certainly, like if Rogue stole Ms. Marvel's powers, that's sort of character identifying. If Uncle Ben died, that's character identifying. If um, Quicksilver's parents are actually Captain America and Baron Zemo, you know, like those <laughs> kind of things. Those kind of things, like, will take into account. Right. Like, but we let people play the most classic versions of the characters. And if they're like, uh, and if through the course of the story, like, I happen to know blankety blank, I'm like, sure, whatever. It's fine. It's continuity light. It, it honors what has happened. It honors what's happened before, but is not beholden to it in order to, because we don't want to slow the story down. Right. Um, what is your your favorite thing about using um, Marvel superheroes as your gaming? Or ga- or cl- yeah, so for us, it's um, that the game is so incredibly easy for the casual gamer. Like, I think maybe, so we have a gaming group that varies between 7 to 11 people per session. Oh, wow, that's huge. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. So uh, sometimes it's as little as 4, but generally it's generally it's 7. It's been as many as 11. So, um, so what I like is that the game is incredibly easy for the casual player. Uh, you don't necessarily have to have read the rule books. I don't think anybody in our game has read the rule books, uh, in at least 10 years. So, uh, but they, they're familiar enough that they've played the game and they have a classic understanding of sort of like, I roll these dice, I look at this chart. And this is what I do. I spend karma if I announce it before the roll. And that's pretty much it. Karma is like a spendable experience point you can use to modify rolls. Okay, great. Awesome. Like that's, that's really it. And then, and then we make it so that, you know, uh, we have an order. I print out an order of play sheet for what the characters can do every turn. Mm-hmm. You know, you can move, you can use a power, you can, you know, have a non action, non, action move like an automatic action like turn a doorknob or whatever so um by and large though we we keep it just really easy so i put together character folders for every character so um when somebody plays they have a folder with their character their stats the powers the order of play sheet uh and a universal table so everybody's got what they need to play their character so you don't need to reference a book i write out what the powers are um, then we use hero clicks or if I can't find the hero clicks or they're super insanely expensive, I just print out the, um, I print out like the fold out, I just make my own fold out characters for them. So it's nice. Like in the last game we had the sinister 66, the players are battling the sinister 66, like the sinister six, but with 60 more members. That's, um, that's insane. And I'm like, I'm grinning. That sounds so much fun. <laughs> So they had to, Mysterio had taken over in order to facilitate Murder World World. He and Arcade had taken over X-Men Mansion and turned it into a sinister sanctum, um, where they were holding X-Men hostages and Cerebro had not just, uh, Mysterio hadn't just plugged himself into Cerebro in order to broadcast his crazy Murder World World message. Uh, he had also plugged himself into all the Shi'ar illusion technology. Mysterio, Master of Illusions, Shi'ar illusion technology, you know, made for crazy stuff. So there were all these traps. So in 
I printed out giant maps of the X-Men mansion. My characters went through each floor, either saving members of the X-Men or um, trying to figure out diffuse anagrams or solve traps or, you know, um, battle members of Sinister 66. And some of them were holograms and some of them were real. And it was crazy. But there were that was the day before the game. There was a lot of cutting out and cutting out figurines and gluing on the dotted line and folding and stuff. But it's fun. But it creates that sense of like menace, like, oh, my God, we're six Avengers against the Sinister 66. And I even created like a Twitter account to sort of simulate um, what the members of the Sinister 66 were. So like sort of like, oh, you've hacked into Avengers database. This is a list of all the members of the Sinister 66 that you can see. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And that's I mean. That's actually what I really enjoy doing as a game master is putting, cause like how often do you hack it? Like how often do you as a player, um, do cool stuff and say, you know what? I'd really like to, uh, GM say, I really want to do cool stuff. But then you're like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Do I print stuff out? Do I tell them in game? Do I, um, like what do I do to make this, um, make this interesting for the player. And what I found is that um, by doing in-game Twitter accounts, um, I'm able to better control sort of how the information is disseminated. And it allows the players who find that information to break off into groups and read it. Mm-hmm. Um, while I, I tend to other players doing other things. So I have a, um, I have an account for the Sinister 66. I have an account for the current game we're playing. Um, where I just sort of do the highlights of what the different things are. So like if there's something cool happening or there's somebody tweeting from some secret location, they'll be like, Oh, this is the crazy stuff that's happening in here, you know? Um, so it's cool. And I'll retweet from that account, cool stuff that the players have done. Um, and then I also curate a, uh, Marvel superheroes, um, Twitter account. Just for people, who, other people who are playing the game um, that aren't playing our game, but just really like the spirit of the game and want to, you know, I just want to celebrate the spirit of the game and not let it die. So I have a Twitter account for that as well. So yeah, I was noticing the other day you you tweeted out on that account the um, uh, was it Ben Riley's page. Yeah, Ben Riley's page. Yep. And I I remember because way back in like the late nineties, I, I started the, um, Marvel superheroes RPG email list when, um, we would, uh, just kind of send our, our updated stats of characters back and forth to each other. And we started, you know, I, he was one of the first people that I saw putting content on websites that we could go and, and we'd all talk about it and, Oh, Hey, he just updated it. You know, this character. And, um, so I, it's, it was, cool i think the reason why we got in touch was because i did a post about how i used to play and some of the resources that i used to use that i was surprised were still there and um it's just kind of it's it's a little heartwarming to go back and see all these things that i remember from 20 years ago still still being updated still being maintained it's it's very cool yeah and so for me that's total it's total fun just to do that and i wanted to create something that like there's just crazy stuff in games. Like we take pictures, we play in a bar in Manhattan 
uh, once a month that called Pioneers. And it's a really great place. And it's really great to have these giant maps and all these different characters doing crazy stuff. Um, and even though it doesn't necessarily mean a lot of stuff to people out of context, I think it really helps our players feel like they're doing cool stuff. You know, like the most thing you can do, like, uh, <laughs> like when Machine Man knocks the crap out of crossbones or beats the, the hell out of abomination, you can't really see it in a, a miniature fight other than just knocking down the abomination miniature. <laughs> right. And I'm like, oh, the abomination's knocked over. <laughs> uh, but the, out of context, it doesn't mean a lot of sense to people not playing the game, but for the people playing the game, there's, uh, there's a sense of tagging that moment and making that moment feel really, really good. So, um, you know, in the game, we t we we do that kind of stuff. We take pictures, we post them on Twitter. Um, you know, we do fun stuff that I I really enjoy. So, um, and we're able to catalog the stuff to just make, like I said, create resources for the players to have. Um, whether it's um, you know, who is this villain? Let me hack into Avengers database to find out. Um, it just creates a a, a lot of really good moments for them. It's very cool. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going through the Twitter now, and it's you've got so much stuff here, and it's all amazing. <laughs> and some of it's you know, fan-created stuff or whatever, but yeah, I mean, it's fun to, to go through. I mean, I, I had a blast doing the stuff, the research for Squadron Supreme stuff, because all the Squadron Supreme is like the United States, but it's different because it's not like New York. It's like Cosmopolis, right. and uh, not called Mount Rushmore. It's called like President's Mountain. And, you know, so it's it's cool to create all this this breadth and depth of stuff. And if I, I would create like fake Facebook pages and fake news pages and all of it's fun and all of it's great. And all of it is I mean, it's more than what you necessarily need. But it what it does is it shows the players, I think, that there is a depth to what is happening that is more than just. Um, somebody slapping something together. Well, and it's it's very impressive because I know a lot of of I mean a lot of GMs will you know do the whole uh, prop thing and they'll bring things in, but I think this is uh, a very fun way of engaging um, your players using the technology that we all now have available to us. And, right. And that's that's a lot of fun. Um, right. And the props can get what what I've talked to my my brother about because he's also a GM is that props can sometimes unless you're having a thing at your house props can often get damaged right um, and you don't need a lot of props to create like you don't need a lot of props to create a really good thing and I think it's easy to go overboard with the props like I was going to uh, in one of my last games I was going to have like all these different pieces of sentinels all out, strewn all ev everywhere. And I was like, you know what? Maybe that's too much to bring to the bar. So maybe if I bring like one or two pieces, that is enough to create that sense rather mm -hmm. than five pieces. Um, so yeah, it's just sort of trying to figure out like what works best for your group and, and making sure that you don't overwhelm it. It's easy to get lost in the props and, and, uh, harder to get lost in the story and making sure you're telling the right story. And what Twitter does, at least for me as a GM, is helps create a narrative that I can tell. So I can create like crazy backstories or give biographical information, include pictures. So character can be like, what does this guy look like again? Oh, right. And when I'm saying, 
a Scarlet Centurion arrives. I'm like, who the hell is a Scarlet Centurion? <laughs> you can be like, oh, that's what he looks like. That's awesome. Um, we've been going on about um, about our knowledge of the game, but for anybody who's listening and has never heard of this game before, we probably should back it up a little bit and talk a little bit about the game itself. You had mentioned um, the um, the table and the what it's called is is skipping my mind at the moment. Universal results table. The universal so, results table. Right. So what makes Marvel Superheroes game? So it was created in 1984. And it was released um, by TSR, the guys who produced Dungeons and Dragons. And it has many of the same writers, and it uses a lot of art from Marvel Comics. It had three basic sets. It had the classic yellow box set, which was the basic set, the blue box, which was the advanced set, which came out in 86, um, and I think ran until 1990. And then they had a basic set revised which uh, came out in 1990. Um, and then, so those were the box sets. You needed the box sets to play the rest of the games. And they, uh, what was great about the game is that they released character stats for nearly 5,000 different Marvel characters. Everyone from Rom to Groot to Rocket Raccoon to, um, you know, Karen Page to J. Jonah Jameson to Mary Jane Watson to Venom to Carnage to, you know, Big Wheel. Um, so there were a lot of, there were a lot of really great uh, stats. So if you wanted to play your favorite version of the character, they had that version. So classic Cyclops from the 1960s, they had that. Cyclops from 1992, they had that. So they created a lot of opportunities to play different versions of characters and they, um, Rather than using a whole range of dice, the game used two twenty-sided, uh, two ten-sided dice to create percentile. You would uh, look at the character stats, and everybody had stats uh, on their character sheet that went from basically one to one hundred, and each one was given a rank. So um, one to zero was shift zero. Uh, one to two was feeble. Uh, like two to three was poor or two to four was or three to four was poor. Five to six was typical. And each of those adjectives that were used were shown on your character sheet. So you might have um, you, for strength, you might have 75, which was monstrous. And so if you needed to do any strength related thing, you would look under the monstrous chart, you would roll the dice and you would, Look at the chart, the universal results table. Um, we should probably throw that up on the site somewhere. Uh, universal results table. <clears throat> and it would tell you whether or not you missed, whether you got a partial hit, um, a yellow result, like a green result. A partial would be a green result. A yellow would be like a, a success. And then a red would be like a super success. So, um, and that's basically how conflict was resolved. And um, I remember, and I'm sorry, I, I remember as a, a GM using that and, and thinking that it was very cool uh, storytelling mechanism because all all it told you was that it was a success or, or to what degree it was a success or failure. And so it, it kind of made it fun to say, all right, well, what does that mean in terms of what we're doing? And I always felt like that gave us a, a kind of um, a little leeway into you know, what the actual results were. And that kind of made it fun because even if you knew you had a success, 
you didn't know what exactly that result would be. Right. So as so, for example, we have a player currently playing Hercules. So what was great about the adjectives is that you could use them in a way to help enhance the narrative you were telling. So Hercules is like, I'm going to hit abomination in the face. And so he rolls, uh, he gets a success and Hercules strength is unearthly. So we say, Hercules, using your unearthly strength, you slug, uh, you know, you slug abomination in the face. He staggers backwards, you know, and then you're able to represent that on a map. Falling off of the helicopter, dangling by his webbed hands, you know, so you're like, oh my god, is Abomination going to fall to death? Is Hercules going to save him? What's going to happen? You know, so it creates that sort of cool stuff. Uh, it's a lot of fun in order to do that. So what I like about the game is, like I said before, it's it's great for the casual gamer. Um, because you don't need to worry about, like, how many dice do I need? Oh, well, you need a D4 or D D6 or D-whatever. You know, um, you have stats. You have your main stats, your fighting, your agility, your strength, your endurance, reason, uh, intuition, and psyche. This is why the game is called Phase Rip, because it takes the first initial of those seven letters and creates that word Phase Rip. Mm-hmm. So those are your stats that generally don't change, but can be enhanced by um, advancement, by earning experience, what is also known as karma, which is sort of like a spendable experience point. You have uh, your first, your health is uh, calculated by taking the sums of all the numbers in your fighting, your agility, your strength, and your endurance. So if I have uh, 10 in each stat, my health would be 40. Um, karma is, is sort of the same way, but with your reason, your intuition, and your psyche. Um, so if I had good in all of those, my karma would be 30. So uh, those are your variable stats. Health and karma are sort of variable. Your other two stats are resources, the ability to get stuff. Uh, and uh, so if you're a poor college student, your resources might be poor. But if you're Tony Stark, your resources might be amazing or monstrous or unearthly. And then popularity. How popular are you? Uh, Captain America is far more popular than Speedball. So that's a that's a a gauge of of how well you can leverage your popularity in order to get stuff. Like when you show up at the scene of a crime, do the police think you're cool or do they think you're a laughing stock? You know, so that's a variable, uh, variable thing. Like and if you're a bad guy, uh, it's how much people fear you. And one of our last games, uh, a player was playing Baron Zemo. And he was able to intimidate, using his popularity, his negative popularity, uh, people into doing stuff. And he's like, I'm Baron Zemo. You might recognize me from such world-conquering schemes as taking over Avengers Mansion, <laughs> the Thunderbolts, you know, controlling the world. So and then the bad guy was like, ah, ah, you know, so, um, you know, so it creates that really sort of like, you know, really kind of nice thing. You know, when Hercules is trying to flirt with other ladies, we look at his popularity and, and say, oh, well, you were able to seduce this one. You weren't able to seduce this one. You know, those mm-hmm. kind of things. Yeah, there's so, a couple of things that I remember from that that kind of struck me from classic Marvel um, that uh, it was 
the the first thing was is the ability to kind of they they called it modeling like they did have a mechanism in there if you wanted to create your own characters as opposed to playing um established ones where very often in in role playing games you kind of are a slave to the dice so you roll your character and you're kind of like well i have to get like 6 or 7 levels before I get my first cool power or before I start really making this character feel like mine. And with this system, you could just go in and talk to the the GM and say, hey, I want my character to be, you know, as strong as uh, She-Hulk, but, um, you know, maybe slower, so, you know, have the agility of the thing. Like, you could kind of model it after existing characters and create a character that was kind of instantly like the way you saw it in your head. And to me, that was always a very cool thing that this game system had, is that as long as you were cool with the, the GM and it wasn't like, you know, you weren't munchkinning your character out, um, you, you could do pretty much anything you wanted and have that, that character that you were hoping for straight out of the box. Right, and so what was really nice too is, so yeah, so they had... Benchmarks. So they gave you an idea of what a benchmark of, of these particular powers were. And they used, um, so say there weren't stats for, at the time I got the box, there weren't stats for Nomad yet, Jack Monroe's character. Mm-hmm. So you could look at the benchmarks and say, and look at your favorite entry of Nomad in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe Deluxe Edition and say, <laughs> well, uh, he is not as good as a fighter as Captain America, so maybe his fighting is incredible. And maybe he is Olympic level. It says so here in his stat book, uh, Olympic level, you look at the ch- chart of benchmarks and says, oh, well, that's incredible. And you say, well, he can lift 500 pounds. That's excellent strength. And he can run without getting exhausted for half an hour. That's remarkable endurance so then you could sort of figure that out oh he's not he's no he's no ben grimm i mean he's no uh tony stark so he he's got kind of a low to you know reason he's got a decent intuition because he's kind of detective so maybe his intuition's like excellent detective skills and and he has shown that he is vulnerable to mind control so maybe he's got a good psyche you know and so mm-hmm. you were able to put together looking at the benchmarks where these characters fell that didn't necessarily have stats uh, yet. So one of the things we were able to do with like our game, and some players have changed, you know, over the course of the last time a supplement was published. So we were able to look at like uh, Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, and say, well, one of the players might want to play Kamala Khan. What are her stats like? And so we were able to look at the material that's on other sites and say, oh, okay, well, she's got, uh, you know, she's not super agile, so maybe she's got typical agility, and she's been trained by Captain America, but she's still not, like, the best fighter in the world. So maybe she's got, uh, you know, good fighting, you know? So mm-hmm. you're, you're able to do that, and that's one of the things I really liked about modeling. And the other thing that I, I noticed kind of back in the day with the game was, unlike Dungeons & Dragons, which I love and I enjoy, um it wasn't loot dependent. It wasn't like you were crawling through this dungeon and you get your plus one sword and you're excited because now you have a plus one sword. 
and you're going to use that in the next room to get the next piece of gear or item or whatever. It was really about storytelling because if your character was leveling up any of their stats, it was done through the story and you were spending karma to do it. But you also had to say, you know, well, why are they all, you know, like, like the example you had, well, she's being trained by, um, by Captain America. So her, her stat is getting better as it goes, but, it's story related. It's not loot related or loot dependent. Right. And so that was actually was really nice is that when the thing they talk about in advancement was that if your character is going to do something crazy that they have uh, in, in terms of advancement that they were out of the ordinary uh, in terms of advancement that they have some sort of rationale. So the example they give in the book is that She-Hulk got stronger when you first saw her. Um, because she was, you constantly saw her training on the thing's workout equipment. Mm-hmm. So, which is how they were able to justify how she went from amazing strength eventually to like unearthly strength or whatever. So it created a really nice opportunity to explain sort of how characters grow and gave, yeah, exactly narrative de- decisions as for what they were doing. And so that's one of the things we do in our game too, is if, like character really wants to get better at research or character wants to get really better at flying something say, Oh, well, you, you know, while Hercules is on a date with Namorita or whatever, uh, beast is training to learn how to fly a Quinjet and he doesn't know it yet, but we can mark that off as a rationale for why he might get the pilot skill later on. Mm-hmm. Now your games have all used characters that are existing. Um, do you prefer that over letting uh, players create their own or um, will you will you possibly run a game in the future where they are creating their own well one of the things that we try to keep in mind when we're putting the game together is like how easy it is for players to player generation sometimes takes a lot of time um, so right now we're at a point where players can choose existing characters in the next game we might allow players to um, build their own characters, but I want to do it in a way I have to figure out a fast way to do it mm-hmm. um, rather than a way that uh, takes a lot of time because we only meet once a month and we, we only play for, you know, 90 minutes to maybe three hours tops every session. Um, so we want to make sure that we're using the best use of our time. So right. we don't want to create um, something that just takes forever for players to, get into. So we might do that in the next game, but we just have to find a fast, easy way to do it that doesn't, um, you know, uh, run up the time that we already, the limited time we already spent together. Seven players in an hour and a half, you sir, must be a very organized GM. Uh, well, I, I keep the, I keep the, whatchamacallit, uh, really fast. So I keep each scenario usually between 20 minutes to 30 minutes. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, players get 20 minutes to do like, uh, research. Okay. You guys have done your research and then, Oh, 20 minutes for this fight and then 20 minutes on the next fight, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, so I try to keep it really moving forward and because we all know each other, uh, it's generally pretty easy to get things moving and, we have a really streamlined, everybody has an order of play. So everybody gets a, um, in order to make it super easy, everybody has an order of play and they get a certain amount of time to determine what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm going to hit like, yeah, I mean, you're going to be familiar with your characters. I think more 
based on I like it, it's weird. People know their Marvel characters more than they might know their D and D characters. I can see that. That makes sense. You know, like so um you've created so you uh, when you create a D and D character, you have to imbue so much of who that character is. Like you have to breathe life into that character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many other people have breathed life into the beast, for instance, that the player knows that he can play ping pong really well and he's super smart and he can do certain things. So there's a certain amount of confidence in playing the beast that there might not be playing a new character that nobody is really familiar with. Um, so the, it gives it a lot of flexibility in terms of um, moving, not flexibility, but it, it helps move the game along because the beast knows, okay, well, I can move up to 12 areas a turn and I can flip and I can claw somebody in the face all in a turn. Like, so that's what I'll do. <laughs> I, like, I know that I'm smart enough that I can research stuff. When um, when Hercules plays, uh, the guy playing Hercules plays, and he sometimes, I mean, he's he's great at stuff that he knows Hercules can do. But sometimes he'll be like, I think I saw Thor do this once. And then he'll, like, <laughs> use his mace to bat, like, he's fighting Video Man from the 80s Marvel comics. As, and so he's he's, uh, he's fighting Video Man, which is crazy, like, video game character. And Video Man shoots an electric ball. And he's like, I saw Thor do this once. And we've never seen... Hercules do this before, but he uses his mace to bat an electric bolt, uh, back at Video Man, just dis- like disrupting it. Like, but he, that sort of thing is like, he, he thinks fast because even though he doesn't necessarily know his character can do it, he does know that other characters that his character hangs out with can, can do it. And so you're, they're able to leverage, uh, they're able to leverage the Marvel, the tapestry of the Marvel Universe dating back to 1966 in order to pull stuff to do crazy stuff. And if they want to do something super weird, like uh, one of our players did, um, one of our players played U.S. Agent. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to do that crazy, like, he was really familiar with U.S. Agent from the Marvel vs. Capcom video game. And he's like, I'll do this crazy, like, Charging Star Final Justice attack, where I attack six things at once. And I said, okay, well, that's a power stunt. So you're going to have to spend this much karma. You're going to have to do this crazy thing. You're going to have to make this exact red roll at a minus four, you know. And he's like, okay, well, you know. So we're able to leverage certain things that they might be familiar with because they're drawing not just from the comics, but from every representation of Marvel around. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's much easier to do that than you're playing your first level, you know, barbarian troll orcish warrior with a you know a staff <laughs> yeah because you have to you have to start you, you you don't have those questions answered for you yet and which is which is part of the fun of of that genre is that you are discovering your character a little bit as you go along but um but yeah i can see we're having the the tapestry there for you to play on definitely streamlines things and lets you do um a lot more of the storytelling from that direction That's right cool. like yeah, so like having Mockingbird do a crazy parkour trick to go from the ground to using her staff as a thing to go to the top of a building in like a turn or two is much easier than saying you are a, you know, a level one elven ranger. Mm-hmm. Go. <laughs> <laughs> um, now you obviously I, have. I don't the... know if I can. 
you obviously have the the basic um, supplements. Did you go back and find, or did you ever own any of the old um, campaign sets, or any of the old um, extra materials that that came with the game? And if so, do you have a favorite? I yes. So um, I went back and I got a bunch of stuff. Um, so I the box set was given to me as a gift for Christmas a couple of years ago by my family. So I have the yellow box, the most recent, the yellow box basic set. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the one I play with the most because those are just basic rules and they're easy to reference. Um, so the set that I have currently, my favorite games um, were the After Midnight trilogy. So it was like After Midnight, um, they were all like Joe Cocker, based on Joe Cocker songs. But it was the one with basically it's a crime spree and it's got um, Hammerhead and the Night Shift and at the end of the game spoilers uh, Fu Manchu is resurrected mm-hmm. and so that was a cra- crazy cool you you got to play Shang Chi and Power Man and Iron Fist and Black Widow and Daredevil and that, those were that was a cool that was my introduction to uh, Fu Manchu and stuff in the Marvel universe was through that game. Um, so that was a lot of fun, but I think my favorite supplement, um, I mean, I like Murder World, uh, which is basically arcade battling Fantastic Four and Murder World, but my favorite one is Gates of What If, which is, um, basically the players end up in a What If universe where, uh, the Fantastic Four didn't survive the first mission and Dr. Doom becomes a hero and, there's a scroll invasion and it's super intense because a lot of characters are dead and the Avengers are totally different. And Jack Monroe became Captain America. And, you know, there's, I mean, it's crazy cool. I mean, the Fantastic Four was like Crystal and, uh, a Daredevil and Quicksilver, like in some Android Human Torch. So that, that to me was really cool because it was like so out there. It was radically different. Um, so that's probably my favorite supplement. Uh, but I mean, the handbooks were great. Uh, Dragon Magazine used to have all the Marvel files, which would have all the characters that they missed and all their updates. So, I mean, I loved all of it, but I think Gates of What If is my favorite because it's so, um, so totally different in terms of what it does, uh, in terms of creating just, uh, uh, taking the familiar and making it completely unfamiliar for the players. And I love those sorts of things. When when my players first fought Sabretooth uh, in, in the very first game, they're like, oh, Sabretooth. Like, we're, there's six of us. We can easily take on Sabretooth. But when Sabretooth started flying and shooting laser vision, um, they're like, oh, my goodness, is he a scroll? What What's going on? And eventually it turned out that he had the powers of Hyperion, and that was crazy. But, like, taking the familiar, they see Sabretooth and they automatically think, well, I know how to beat Sabretooth. But when you take something that's familiar and then totally twist it on them, suddenly they, they're like, oh, what do we do now? How do we fight this thing? Yeah, that's cool. I had completely forgotten about that supplement because I would have always – I always say that my um, my favorite one is the uh, Nightmares of Future Past. I think they had a lot of really cool um, innovation for the game in, in that with you know how the sentinels are looking for your characters and it's very kind of a dark gritty uh background setting i had completely forgotten about um the what if 
storyline and you're right it is it is an amazing thing just to read through the the supplement is is kind right. of fun so i had completely forgotten about that oh my god totally yeah, having so, a geek moment right now <laughs> yeah so i mean the, in the nightmares of future past ones are good but um what i've and, and they're scary they're yeah. super scary um and it's very i mean it's very interesting because it deals so much with the um deals so much with basically the in a way the cold war mm-hmm. and the sort of communist threat um because those books were written in 1987 and so like it was definitely there was a lot of cold war stuff in there and it was it's super well thought out, but it's a little terrifying to play as a GM. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a little bit. I I tried running that a little bit. I kind of modified it because it is it is a little overwhelming if if you don't do it well. <laughs> it, it is it is a very um a very daunting task that one. Uh, so when I ran something similar, I I kind of modified it so it was a little bit more direct and a little less. You, I think as a GM, it's very easy to lose control of the story if you give your characters too much freedom, and that book was a lot about letting them kind of go anywhere in the world and you having to react to it. Right. Uh, right. And well, it's, it's terrifying in a way. I mean, it was cool to see, like, in I think the last couple of books, they're like, this is Cannonball's team of X-Men. I was like, what? And yeah. this is Iron Man's secret suit of armor. I was like, Whoa! Um, so yeah, so it's a little ominous. So, um, for, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, it, I'd be interested in revisiting that if it wasn't so terrifyingly, you know, cause it's interesting because it's so terrifying in a way to look at those supplements, uh, cause I was revisiting them not too long ago. It's interesting to see so much of that was written in like 1986, 1987, um, in retaliation to, you know, as a reaction to obviously what was happening in the X-Men comics, but also as a reaction to what was happening in communism. But also to look at them now in sort of this post 9-11, uh, radicalized America is, is actually super terrifying. Yeah. So, uh, it might be interesting to run that game, but I would have to run it Hmm. Thank you. <laughs> We've given you ideas. Yes, my poor players. <laughs> well, very cool. Well, is there anything that we haven't touched upon um, in in this kind of uh, game setting that that we are neglecting? That that if we do not cover, we we are severely <laughs> lacking in our geekitude. Well, I mean, I think that um, for me, I mean, I I would. Uh, think that everyone should go out and find the game. Mm-hmm. I think there's really great tutorials about the game. Um, I am at some point, I don't know if this is true, but I, th- I think my secret pipe dream is to do a celebrity invitational where I invite um, some of my comic writing and comic art peers to do a celebrity game at a convention where we podcast it live and then people come in, can make a donation to, um, can make a donation to like the hero initiative in order to watch. Um, and I think that could be a, like a lot of fun. So if you got me and like Jamal Igel or Fred Valenti or Greg Pack and we all play different characters, that could be fun. I think that's my secret pipe dream. Oh, please, please, please. If you, if you get that going, please let me know. I will, <laughs> I will do whatever I need to help promote and or, uh, be there for the viewing because that seems like it would be absolutely phenomenal. 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's, I think my secret pipe dream is just like, it's such an easy game. And I think that it could be used as a lot of fun to do just some wacky stuff. So. Very cool. Well, very, very cool. Well, thank you so much for, for discussing that with us today. Really, really appreciate it. Um, do you have any shout outs for, uh, people out there listening? Well, I mean, I, w- I mean, I would love for people to check out, um, my Twitter account and at David Gallagher. Um, I'm online at davidgallagher.com, uh, and check out high moon and the only living boy on either our websites, highmooncomic.com or olbcomic.com. And, uh, check out the books, which are available on Amazon and your local comic shops. Very cool. Very, very cool. Um, next week we're going to have L from your friend L blog. Uh, she's uh, the creator of the Nerd Out app, which is basically an app for your phone that lets you kind of find geeky things that are going on in your area. And um, I definitely found a couple of things to do up in Portland when I was up there. I was like, let's see what's going on tonight. And uh, so it's kind of a cool app. We're going to talk to her about her whole process uh, coming up with that and just kind of her geeky adventures uh, she's a, a big geek traveler. She likes to, to travel around and, and experience the world. Uh, and she often talks about it from a geek perspective. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. Um, all the music in this episode is by Ben Sound and is being used under a Creative Commons license. You can find more music by Ben Sound at bensound.com. You can currently find us at geektitude.com. If you would like to contact me, you can send me an email at Joe Hogan at geektitude.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Geektitude or me personally at Epic Grays. And um, thanks again, David, for, for talking with us this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And for all of you listening out there this week, remember to keep it geek. 